Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, what happens when a sex offender goes to rehab? We look at what works, what doesn't, and why home detention is no free ticket out of jail. Programs are not easy to design, and the sort of um, breaking rocks in the hot sun stuff never worked and never will. It's a knee-jerk reaction that we think of in the community while they're out of prison, so that can't be right. And home detention is a 24-7 sentence at home. It's not easy. The idea for this came out of our podcast about Jaden Meyer, who was sentenced to home detention after he was convicted of raping four teenage girls and sexually violating another. The sentence sparked angry protests over what many see as the injustice of the system. Legal expert Deborah Wilson told us that going to community rehabilitation was one of the conditions of Meyer's home detention sentence. There are 20 conditions imposed. The rehabilitation is a key one. He's under judicial monitoring, which means that a judge will check on his progress every three months. And if he's not engaging with rehabilitation, then he could be resentenced and perhaps sent to jail. So. What does go on in rehabilitation? Well, I have to say, finding people to talk about this wasn't easy. But Chester Burrows knows more than most. He's been working in the justice system for 45 years in many roles. A policeman, a police minister, a member of the parole board and head of Tu Uepu, the Effective Justice Advisory Group. So we are talking about rehabilitation programs for sex offenders. Now, there are two types of programs, I believe. There's there's the programs in prison and then there's the programs in the communities, Chester. Yes, there are private providers of programs out in the community. And, of course, there's always corrections provided psychologists who can provide one-on-one sessions with with offenders in the community. But the programs that do the best, have the best results, and the ones that are always recommended by corrections are those that are done while they're in prison. Those that are provided by private providers are for prisoners who, for one reason or another, didn't manage to get to rehabilitation while they were in prison. And that could be for a number of reasons. A lot of them are pretty inexplicable actually but and frustrating because most of the public want to know that people in prison get access to rehabilitation but if they don't they can do programs in the community on release while they're on parole but of course if they run out of time they won't get parole and they won't get anything they'll just be released onto the street. Is that right well I because I, I have heard that the programs in prison are so full that they often have to wait a long time to even get on one? Well, they tend to be regulated by uh, their sentence. So, for instance, if you've got somebody who is in prison, hasn't done any rehabilitation, but is going to get out in 18 months, then his case is very, very urgent because the programme may take nine months to a year, probably about a year. So they want to get that person on the programme, then they want to have some time to monitor him before he's released. If someone else has been waiting longer but isn't going to be released for three years, then they'll have to hang on a little bit longer. And and there's a sort of an obvious unfairness about that. But at the same time, there's an efficacy about that as well 
and you want to have as many people as possible having had rehabilitation before they get released back into the public to live in community next to people that we love and care for. And you're saying that not all of these prisoners do get to a programme before they're released? No, they don't. And that can be for a number of reasons as well. The set programmes that are in prison in Christchurch and Auckland are group therapy programmes. Now, there are some people who just are not suited for group therapy. And, and that isn't because they say they don't want to or they think it's an easy out to say that they won't do it. They do have to agree to do it, but at the same time, there's huge incentives for them to agree to do it as well. If someone says they can't do group therapy, then there's usually a psychological report accompanying that, which will either say this person can do or can't do group therapy. If they can't do group therapy, then what is usually done is is offered individual psychological therapy covering the same sorts of things that one of these group treatment courses would cover, but it's with the psychologist. And they can be pretty tough and demanding as well. So it's not an easy out. But um, there are ways of making sure that people do get the help they need through a number of different courses. So group therapy, I mean, what would they be doing more specifically? I think we've read about one programme where there's some role-playing, there's psychodrama. What more do you know about these actual programmes? Well, the the group therapy is provided using a number of different tools. The role-play is one, and there are others. But the other thing is that each individual is largely accountable to the group. Sooner or later, they have to talk about their offending to the group. And if that person tries to mitigate victim blame, in other ways sort of step out of it and say it wasn't me or, well, it was done to me or whatever, then the group holds them to account, and that can be pretty forceful and pretty pretty strident. So it's not an easy task, and people who are starting to get enlightenment into their own offending tend to be pretty tough on those around them who try to avoid or mitigate their own involvement. And that's why the group therapy is so important? That's right, and it's every day for several months. So it's not like they can run away and hide or that they don't have to turn up one day or those sorts of things, in actual fact. They're held to account by their group for their sexual offending. And, and all of a sudden, as you can imagine, these are other sexual offenders who have just had the scales taken off their eyes and they can see um, what they did and the penis stuff that they committed and they're quite prepared to hold other people in their group accountable for theirs. Do they have to accept guilt before they go into this rehabilitation programme? Yes, accepting responsibility for their offending or at least what they've pleaded guilty to and been found guilty of is a prerequisite of going to these courses. There are rehabilitation courses which are usually done one-on-one with a psychologist for those who don't accept and don't admit. And there's a different path taken in relation to those sex offenders. For instance, if they're saying, I never did this, it was all made up by you know my wife's children from another relationship, and it's all rubbish to get back at me, rah, rah, rah. Then what tends to happen is that psychologists 
talk about the need for the public to know they're safe from people with these sorts of convictions. What are you going to do and how are you going to behave to make sure that the public can feel safe around you and that you aren't accused of these sorts of things in the future? And so that, again, is a pathway that's taken, which is pretty strong, holds people to account very strongly and strictly. You mm. often find that people head off down that track and then admit that in actual fact they were responsible for at least some of the offending that they were charged with. What is it that these programs do that changes the mindset? I mean, there's obviously the the importance of the group therapy and being held to account. A lot of sex offenders mitigate their offending by pointing to incidents in their childhood where it happened to them, you know, it happened to me, didn't hurt me, um, didn't bother me, that sort of stuff. Or believe it or not, that they believe that even very, very young victims actually wanted and initiated the sexual contact. And so it's relieving them of that absolute um, fallacy that a a child or any victim actually wanted the abuse that was levelled against them or in some way asked for it. And it's those sorts of revelations that find find these uh, offenders wanting and that's when they really come to their knees. And it's really important for the public to be aware of the fact that this realisation is is real. This isn't some sort of crocodile tears situation people do in order to achieve parole or an early release. In actual fact, some of the most humbling things that I've witnessed in prisons has been people sit in front of a parole board, talk about their offending, and make absolutely no bones about it and not try and mitigate it in any way whatsoever. Sitting there in front of their mothers um, or their family members supporting them who have always been their true believers and have always thought that they were innocent men wrongly accused and look at them and say, no, I did it and this is how it happened and this is exactly what I did. And, And this, to my mind, this is some of the best and most healing stuff that happens in prisons. And if the public would ever only turn their minds to what actually happens in prisons, they would be very, very pleased with the way the corrections department's working in this space. How do we know how successful it is? Obviously, it's about repetitive offending of a similar kind within a certain period of time. And then into the future, obviously, if they commit similar offending 10 years after they do the course, it's just as bad as if it um, happens earlier. But it's difficult to compare it with average recidivist offending because if you take a slice across the prison population, you've got 30,000 people going to prison every year, but you've got a prison population of about 8,000 people. So most of it is very fluid, flowing in and flowing out. And a lot of it, especially with sex offenders, sentenced offenders who are doing longer terms of imprisonment, they um, don't have the opportunity to reoffend so quickly. So you've got an average reoffending rate of about 65% within five years of somebody being released from prison. But the recidivist rate for sex offenders having completed these courses is far, far lower than that. And internationally, New Zealand is regarded as close to best practice. Is that right? Yeah, internationally, New Zealand's regarded as being right at the top of their game. And the Akia Marama program, which was created by Dr. 
Tony Ward. Tony Ward is, is having better results than almost every other country. And in many countries, they, they say that their sex offenders can't be rehabilitated, but they're not doing it in the same way that we are. And they're coming and looking at us and seeing what they can do that's like us. And many countries have picked up similar programs. Chester, you have been working in the justice system for around 45 years, and you must have seen programs like this change over time. Well, you see rehabilitation programs change over time because, frankly, some of them don't work. You know, we've previously had we've had courses such as straight thinking, which just about everybody got sentenced to prison was sentenced to do, and they found that people who did the straight thinking program were more likely to reoffend than than not. So uh, obviously that was knocked on the nut pretty quick. Let's look at how rehab fits into the judge's decision on prison versus home D. It begins well before the sentence is handed down. Some of the programs I've used before for sexual offenders, it's a 30 or 40 day assessment. And these are specialists, psychologists, many of them. And it's a very extensive assessment process to then find a treatment plan which suits them. 30 to 40 days assessment? Mm. They go in basically every day. This is John Munro, an Auckland defence lawyer who has represented many sexual offenders. You can get rehabilitation for drugs, um, sexual offences, and of course domestic assaults and, and rehabilitation for learning how to deal with your anger. And so there's been a lot more of um, those sorts of types of treatment and programs available over the last decade. During the process, if you plead guilty to an offence, and obviously part of that guilty plea is an expression of remorse, and then you can demonstrate to the court uh, prior to sentencing that you have learnt your lesson and you're going to be a safer person in the community because of the treatment that you've done. And in the, in the court process, at the sentencing time, if, if you have made a concerted effort and, have, and you can demonstrate to the, to the court, to judge, uh, you can get a discount in your, your sentence. The sentencing methodology usually it will start with a starting point. The judge will assess the criminality and culpability of the offender and say, OK, this is worth X number of months or X number of years uh, prison. And then um, you will get discounts from that starting point down to an end point, which is what you'll end up serving. So if you do an early plea, for example, you can get 25% credit off that starting point. If you show a proper remorse, you can claim a discount of the other 5-10%. And rehabilitation as well, if you, can, you can get up to around 20% credit as well. So it's really worth their while to do, to do the rehabilitation. It's, it's worth their while as far as a sentence is concerned. It's also worth their while for, for them personally. It's for the community as well because uh, if that pers- person is at risk in the community, then rehabilitating and, and demonstrating that to court will mean, at least in the judge's eyes, that they'll be a safe member of our community. And in terms of referral, so is it like they have to go to a programme or is it a voluntary thing? In, in the sexual type matters, it's, it's more choice. I tend to think part of my role is to not just defend a person in the sense that um, colloquial people might say, you know, to get them off. A whole package is, in, is part of my process. So if 
if they plead guilty and acknowledge their guilt, then I'm interested in the fact that they get back achieve normality, but also the community feels safe by that. And touch wood, most of those sorts of situations, the clients I've had, that has worked. I've never had a client yet, I don't think, from memory, that it has come back to me having reoffended. So they do work, these these rehab programmes? Well, I think they do. We're talking more about the sexual ones now, mm. or the drugs are a different issue, because, you know, drug addicts, it's a very difficult process, and addicts can fall in and out of addiction. It's extremely difficult. But the sexual ones, um, I, yeah, I haven't had a situation where someone's reoffended that has gone through any of the rehabilitation courses that I've sent them on, either privately or public ones. So you can do private. The sexual offending type programs, there aren't many. The only one I know of in Auckland is is SAFE, is the SAFE program. There's one in the South Island which is similar called STOP. And uh, I know there are programs in prison. The difficulty you have sometimes if, you, if they're low-risk offenders and they're young men, for example, is that sometimes they can go to prison and, and just not get treatment at all. And that's a huge failing in my view. So you can get that treatment in the community sometimes with programs like SAFE, or you can seek private treatment. There are psychologists who specialise in both the you know, assessment of these sorts of offenders, plus also can treat them, but they're few and far between. And you'd have to pay for it yourself? Yes. Gosh, and I mean, it's not cheap. No, but look, a lot of people that do offend... Um, they, they know they've got a problem and they want to deal with it and they want to try and come out the other end. A lot of people are really, really committed and willing to pay that money and it, and it does cost a lot. What is that, that process of making that decision about whether to send someone to prison or get them to uh, serve their time at home? And I suppose there's this perception that if it's home detention, it's a kinder sentence on the on the offender? Look, it's an, it's an interesting question because I think as a community, especially in New Zealand, perhaps other Western countries, we, we think of crime and then we tend to think of punishment and then we tend to think straight away of prison. We've all heard the term, people saying, oh, that guy, just that girl, just chuck him in prison and throw away the key. That's what they deserve. And that, that's our mentality. And and so when we when a particular crime is carried out on, and particularly where there's a victim, there's a, a, a powerful urge to, from the community and from the victim, that that person should be punished and that punishment should be prison. But there are other factors at play in, in a sentencing process, and they are rehabilitation and reintegration into the community and um, making sure that they take responsibility for the crime and making sure that the victim does feel they've been listened to fairly and that they, they have the abuse put across in court. So there are a whole lot of aspects to sentencing. And home detention is not an easy sentence either. Again, it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction that we think of in the community. Well, they're out of prison, so that can't be right. Mm. And home detention is a 24-7 sentence at home. It's not easy people really, really struggle with these Programs are not easy to design, and the sort of um, breaking rocks in the hot sun stuff never works and never will. So because so many different uh, social interactions 
uh, lead to people going to prison. That's why, you know, you find over 80% of people in prison don't read or write at their chronological age. That's why 91% in prison have got a diagnosable mental health illness mm. or why 65%, I think, have suffered previously from head trauma and why they all seem to come from the same suburbs in our communities and why they seem to have the same employment records and and the same sort of failure within the economy. So until we as a country start taking responsibility for all of that, you know, we're going to fail. And secondly, it just says how how complex some of these courses need to be. And it's not excuse-making. It's actually looking at the evidence and taking an evidence-based approach as people want us to take in relation to other things we have to consider, like policy decisions around health or around climate change, for example. At the moment, there seems to be a a, a bit of a tough-on-crime narrative going on, particularly with young offenders. And I know with sex offenders, we're talking about something completely different. But some people would argue that home detention and doing a community rehabilitation for sex offenders is... It seems to be nice on the nice on the offender, but what about the victims? Obviously, home detention is easier time than going to prison. We would tend to think. However, there's lots of other things to consider there as well as to what you can actually do at home, what you can't do. And if you went to prison, at least it would be done and dusted. And if you've been to prison or other members of your family have, then it going to prison may not be all that hard time either. So there are other things to consider. Secondly, if you're at home and other members of your family are well constricted with lots and lots of visits from the police checking that you are actually home, then you're not the most popular person in the household either. So it's not all as it seems. You have to think about prisons and what we're doing when we take someone out of the community who hasn't been to prison before and drop them into a prison situation. The associations we're creating for them, you know, what we're largely doing is giving them a um, qualification in in further crime, and we're giving them a whole new range of associates. And the fact that 65% of them are going to carry on going back to prison and certainly carry on offending just shows that it doesn't work, the system's buggered, and Everybody, whether they are victims, offenders, lawyers, judges, police, uh, corrections, uh, anybody else, says that the system is broken. So if we are prepared to put on our big girls' knickers and accept that we're dealing with a broken system and we need to fix it if we want to call ourselves a civilised society, we're not worthy of the task or the name. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. And thanks to Chester Borrows and John Munro. Mā te wā. 